since 1971. So far this year, almost 18,000 cases of gonorrhea have been reported in Michigan. The Department of Health suggests that uh, if you're going to get VD, wait until after the 1st of January. The home of rock and roll throughout the 70s and into the 80s. The WRIF 1984 World Concert Tour continues. With me, Arthur P. Be listening to Riff for your chance to invade Japan with the Grand Pubasan. Detroit's only real rock and roll radio station in the decade of the 90s. This is MCI with a collect call from... Uh, Haywood Jablomi. <laughs> <laughs> To accept charges, press no. one now. No. Or if it rocks, it's on the riff in the early part of the 21st century. I remember actually trying to still record, because where they evacuated us, some of the smaller bands, like the second and third stage bands, were in the same area that they evacuated us. And I snuck my little handheld uh, digital recorder out there, so I just interviewed some of the bands during the storm. <laughs> <laughs> That's Steve, always working. <laughs> For nearly 50 years, we are, have been, and continue to be 101 WRIF. Here is Mike Staff with our special guest, Meltdown. Well, welcome to the podcast, friends. It's the history of WRIF. I'm your host, Mike Staff. I had the pleasure of being a DJ on the riff for 14 years, from uh, 1992 to 2006. History of WRIF, this podcast, we are talking to the people and the personalities that has made the riff the riff. And uh, today, we are sitting here with the one and only Meltdown. Hey, dude. Hey, not just sitting here. We're out here by the lake, by the campfire. There's people walking around. I mean, what more could you ask? You know, let's set the scene for our listeners right now. So we're in Traverse City right now. I moved to Traverse City when I retired from radio in 2006. Yeah. And uh, we've kept in touch. And so we are sitting. I live on a lake about 10 miles west of Traverse City. We're sitting on the lake maybe 20 feet away from the water. We're sitting up on a bluff. We've got a campfire going. And uh, Meltdown brought a bottle of blackened whiskey. Yeah, it's Metallica's whiskey. Metallica's whiskey. And then um, it wasn't quite full, so he also brought a <laughs> bottle of Jack Daniels. <laughs> I don't know how it... I think it evaporated on the way up here. That happens. Actually. So we thought that we would just sit here and drink some whiskey and have a conversation about the riff. Yeah, it works for me. You know, it's like I've listened to some of the podcasts. Actually, I've listened to all of them. And it's, uh, it's interesting to hear, like, the history of the station that I work at. It, which I have for practically half of my life. Now, yeah, crazy, you know? isn't it? It's weird because uh, I tell people this all the time. My dad, when I when I got the job here, he said, uh, "You know, go give it six months and see what happens." And here I am in 2020, sitting on a lake in Traverse City <laughs> with a bonfire going, talking to you. So. Almost 25 years. November will be 25 years. Yeah, for no, yeah, 25 years. Yeah, that is ab- absolutely amazing. It's got a blow your mind just because 25 years flies by so fast yeah no doubt but you know it's funny because uh you know i didn't know if i'd make it this long i didn't know if i get past the overnight shift to be quite honest with you well, because, sure yeah yeah oh trust me there was uh yeah we're gonna get rid of this guy pretty quick but uh <laughs> you know, I've, I've managed to uh succeed so. well in the radio industry though it's pretty rare for people to stay at a radio station more than about five years it just doesn't happen at riff it's always kind of happened. Arthur being there almost 40 years and being there 30 years. Yeah. Steve Black's been there for, I don't know, probably almost tw- over 20 years. Probably 20 or so, yeah. Screaming Scott was there forever. Yeah, Drew Mike yeah. for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, you know, here's the thing. It's like, uh, you know, you know, stations like the Rift don't just fall out of trees, you yeah. know? And it's like, uh, I, don't under, I don't understate the fact that, you know, working at Rift, is really something I don't take for granted. And it's like uh, the station is a special breed. It and is. there's only one riff in the country. That's for sure. There's several, you know, name your station. 
you know, but there's only one riff in the country. Well, and as we were thinking about doing this podcast before we launched it, uh, and a, a running name was going to be the Legends of Riff, and then we decided to call it, you know, uh, the history of WRIF. But a lot of the people that we've been talking to are definitely legends for sure in Detroit. And what's interesting about everyone meltdown is I think you're about the only one that isn't native to Metro Detroit. Yeah, people say to me all the time, like, "What?" so I grew up in Buffalo, right? And they're like, what's Buffalo like? And I'm like, you know, it's just like Detroit, yeah. like half the size. It is. It's really? Like, yeah. Blue collar. Blue collar. It's like the city's the city. The suburbs are the suburbs. It's uh, the same kind of weather. I know Buffalo, you know, takes its beatings for uh, the snow and whatnot. But, you know, uh, right now during the summer, it's hot and sticky sometimes. Sometimes it's nice, you know, but um, very blue collar, uh, very much like uh like detroit and so i think that uh that's kind of uh what has helped me to uh you know stay this long it's you know um when i first even had the inkling i was going to come and work in detroit my first thought was when i got the call to say would you like to come to detroit was uh that's where they build the cars and i'm a big three guy yeah and then as years gone by it's like well you had alice cooper and bob seeger and ted nugent and all these legends come out of detroit and then all of a sudden Kid Rock and Eminem and, you know, other bands like White Stripes, you know, Greta Van Fleet Mm -hmm. for the most part, you know, stuff like that. So it's like, it's, it's really, and I'm a huge big three guy and I'm a huge rock guy. And so it just makes sense. And I can tell you, and we've talked about this before, as a matter of fact, uh, you and I, uh, spent a week and a half together one night back here in <laughs> That's last a good way of putting it. Right. That's right. And, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I think I talked to you about this then. It's like, when I talk to these rock bands, like, I never try to fish for compliments for me or the area or the radio station. A lot of these guys dish it out on their own. Yeah, they know. They know that Detroit, you know, it's not like name your city, like we were just talking about. It's like, you know, Detroit is something kind of special. And that's why they record their, you know, live records here. That's yeah. why they, they do so many things in Detroit. Because uh, I have friends tell me all the time that playing bands just private conversations that you know we know that detroit's going to be a good show well and it, it's uh, people probably don't realize this but a lot of bands will come through detroit sunday through thursday right exactly. because they know detroiters are going to show up to the party they don't care what day of the week it is we're in a lot of markets man if they're yeah. on a weeknight they're not going to sell out yeah you got to show up on a, on a weekend of some smaller markets and stuff or else you know yeah you're gonna have a problem for sure it's been said that uh you know Re- or uh, detroit works eight hour shifts and we party in eight hour <laughs> shifts you know? <laughs> well you know you look at uh i think it was uh last year or the year before i think dte as far as outdoor venues had the most tickets sold mm-hmm. throughout the year and then uh little caesars actually was uh, right behind madison square garden somewhere along those lines as far as tickets sold for events so yeah, it's really you know crazy. it's you know so anyways i guess the, the the point i'm getting at is that uh you know yeah i grew up in buffalo but i consider myself a detroiter and it's funny because when when i'm here i'll say home meaning buffalo but when i go back uh, home to see my dad and stuff i'll say oh, i gotta get back home. home you know <laughs> and this is where you know I built, you know, a family and, you know, and everything else like that. So I, well, I know you said once that you were raised in Buffalo, but you were made in Detroit. Yeah, that's what it says on my Twitter. <laughs> I know. Well, I was uh, I was talking with those guys, the main Detroit guys, and I think uh, Kid Rock was around. And I think I, I think I saw something. Uh, it was either Bob Seger or, um, uh, or Ted Nugent or something. It said, like, I think it might have even been Bob Seger, you know, made in Ann Arbor or whatever. Yeah. Or born in Ann Arbor, made in Detroit. And that's what kind of gave me that. Uh, because really... You know, I was on the radio for five or six years back in Buffalo, but really, I was made in Detroit. 
you know, um, you're just a kid when you got to Detroit, though. You were what, 24 years old? I think or I was something? 26. Oh, 26. Well, like for example, uh, Vinny Paul became a friend of mine, and I remember one night I ran into him in Vegas. That's like the pin tweet on my uh, on my Twitter, and uh, I knew as soon as he, you know, he was hammered, gone. <laughs> and it was like midnight. He'd just come from Guns and Roses. We were at a Steel Panther concert, and I said to him, I said, "Hey, uh, VP," and his head was down and stuff. And I knew what was going to happen. I said, uh, hey, it's Meltdown. And he goes, from Detroit? (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Oh, man, that was a fun night. But, uh, yeah, so, yeah, like, you know, Detroit is my hometown. I mean, I and and like I said, I'm a blue-collar guy. You know, I'm not a flashy, fancy, frills Well, so when I've, you know, I've um, interviewed a lot of people, and I often ask some of the, you know, DJs uh, riff about other DJs. And whenever I bring up your name, everyone says the same thing, and I would agree, too, that you've got the best work ethic that anyone has ever met. Um, You couldn't have a better work ethic than you because you're 110% all the time. Where did that work ethic come from? Well, I think that, you know, it comes from, like, you know, probably just growing up. You know, I tell people this a lot, and they, they probably don't believe me, but I think it, a lot of it has to come from playing hockey growing up because playing hockey, you know, you're, 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 you're um, accountable, you're responsible, mm. you've got to be a, a teammate, and it's like either you get the puck or you don't. <laughs> so yeah, right. it's like I go to work because that's what I do. You know, and we were talking about this earlier. It's like there's not a day that goes by where I'm like, eh, I just don't feel like going to work. Right. And I, there may be days where I'm at work and I'm not feeling it perhaps. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Uh, there have been days where I've left. I'm like, eh, that, that just wasn't great. But, you know, um, for the most part, it's like I believe in going to work. I believe I've instilled that in my kids. It's like, you know, if you want it, you got to do it. And I found out years ago in this business, many years ago, if, if you want it, you got to do it. Yeah. Because no one's going to just give it to you. Well, and you've been a riff for almost 25 years, been in the radio business for almost 30 years. And we were, just, we were talking earlier at dinner about how you feel like you just elevated your game again about six months ago. You were always looking for that next place. And a lot of people, after 30 years in a business, man, they're not going to be striving for that kind of excellence. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because, like, in, in 2020 here, it's like not only do I do the stuff on the air, but also, like, you know, the podcast and, and different things like that and, you know, different production elements and and all that kind of stuff so all the stuff you hear production wise on my show i made or i wrote or whatever and i had the voice guy do and so it's like um you know as far as that kind of stuff is concerned you know that always that always excites me to get up every day and and think oh if i send the voice guy this you know and i i I got it in my head and he kind of thinks like like i think i've never met the voice guy but he I think um, he thinks like I do. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. I think so. he gets the attitude that he you're does. trying to purvey. Yeah, yeah, and he does. He does like stations and TV all around the world. Yeah, and but he knows me. Like, and, and he'll get it back to me so fast. It's amazing. So that kind of excites me too. Like, you know, I got this idea for this. You know, I'll email him, and it comes back in you know a half hour, and it's perfect. So coming up, so I'm doing the overnight show, and I, I nicknamed it the overnight domination. And at the time. Uh, the, the baseball player from Seattle was real popular, the big unit. So I'm like, well, why is he? The, I can be the big unit, too. So I became Meltdown, the big unit. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. And so uh, it was it was kind of a joke. So I'm five foot six. You know, we're just goofing off, you know? Right. And so um, I'm throwing everything I can at the wall. And I still get people to this day that were listening to the, to the show because uh, I don't really want to get into too much about what I did on, on the air at nights. But there was, there was girls and maybe a few more girls here and there. And Sometimes some taco more. Girls. And, yeah, yeah, taco <laughs> girl, yeah. And, uh, you know, we would do all sorts of dumb things. And, uh, you know, I don't, I, I know the boss didn't like it very much, but I'm like, you know. He was sleeping. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm Meltdown, and if you're a music fan, you should listen to my podcast. It's called Talkin' Rock with Meltdown. I go behind the scenes and talk to some of the artists from some of your favorite bands. And sometimes the stories are a little crazy. Like, for example, the time I picked up legendary 80s singer Don Dokken at a 1967 hearse. Do you remember that? Yeah, you still have that hearse? Or perhaps when Corey Taylor's producer, Jay Rustin, told me that Corey's solo album sounds like Tom Petty on steroids. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's one way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, they're not your typical rock star interviews. Check out Talking Rock with Meltdown at bpodstudios.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Backstagecountry.com, your online home for all things country music. Lainey Wilson is on a roll. She's delivering great music and teaming up with some of country's hottest acts. Text Lainey to 45911 to see which four Lainey Wilson collabs have us talking at BackstageCountry.com. Text Lainey to 45911 to get a link to the list sent right to your phone from BackstageCountry.com. The history of WRIF. JJ. And the morning crew. Ken Calvin. Arthur Penhallow. Steve Costan. And Karen Savelli. Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. So this is the history of WRIF. Uh, we're talking a meltdown. Do you do you, all of your friends call you meltdown? You know, a lot of them do, yeah. Or, you know, um, especially in the, in the radio business. And plus, it's funny because, like... Um, you know, some guys like, for example, like like Kid Rock. When I introduce him to people, he'll always introduce himself as Bobby. And I know that the Kid Rock name, kind of, you know, at, as approaching a fifty-year-old, yeah. he's not crazy about it. And I've I've given this a lot of thought that you know sometimes you know maybe I should just drop the meltdown. But it's like you know it's it's been around so long and and, uh, and fans brand? remember it. Yeah. You know, it's I've kind of I've kind of built it. It's one of those things where it's like I didn't just I didn't just make up this name as some sort of like you know a hairdresser at fantastic sam's like i kind of earned it a little bit you know where where did you come up with the name meltdown there was a character back home and uh, on the radio called meltdown mitch and mm. um and the short story is my friend started calling me the meltdown one and then i would go on the air as a character when i was uh working overnights doing custodial stuff and i was like 18 or 19 i made friends with the nighttime dj who i'm still friends with to this day and he would call me the meltdown one mm. And I got on the air, and my, my boss said, just call yourself Meltdown, and, you know, that's kind of the short story. I see. So, <laughs> so do all of your friends that you made in the last 25 years in Detroit, because I, I I've never heard anyone call you by your real name, and I don't know, has, have you ever gone public with your real name? No. Yeah. And I like, you know what, you know what's funny, it's like, as far as I'm concerned, like, with radio, it's theater of the mind, it's the uh, anonymousness of it, yep. and that's why I always really liked, you yep. know? Does your wife call your meltdown? <laughs> she calls me some names I probably can't say here. As long as she doesn't call you letdown. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that might be one too. I don't know. But uh, you know, um, you know, it's like it is what it is. It's like thirty years, and I, I've thought about it a lot. But you know, people seem to remember it. Um, you know, there's only one. <laughs> yeah, right. I think I don't know. There's a lot of different paths that people take to get into radio. You just mentioned that you were working at a station overnights as a young man, 18 years old. You didn't go to college. You knew what you wanted to no, do. No, I was working. Or? I was doing custodial stuff overnights, so and I started calling the DJs and kind oh. of bugging them, and they put me on the air as like kind of like a guest. You no know, no kidding. And so then, uh, September- kind of Mike Clarkish. Yeah, exactly. Very much so like him. Yeah. And so then, around September 28th, 1989. 
I remember uh, I got an interview with a legendary morning show guy back home in Buffalo who is now running this oldie station by satellites. They were looking for board operators, so I would just insert commercials in there in the three-minute windows or whatever for people that don't know what that is. And so then uh, I interviewed with him, and I got the job. So I, uh, I to way, the way I looked at it, like that door was open like a little bit. Yeah, all right. Now it's time open. to kick it open. Right on. Okay, I'm in the building now. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh huh. And yeah, I never went to college. Never went to a radio school. I never went anywhere like that. I just like kind of learned on the job. And so, um, so I would give my demo tapes on cassette to the program director, who was uh, down the hallway for the FM station. And so on February 10th, about five months after I had started. Uh, he gave me a shot. Ooh. And uh, that shot was brutal, and it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> and then two months later, Ralph Sapola takes over, who you know Ralph. Ralph and, uh, was a program director at our sister station, yeah. WCSX, for a long time. Right, and so Ralph takes over, and I'm like, this is it, man. My career is over before it even gets a chance to get started. Because you didn't know him. You just thought he was going to blow you out. I Well, I just thought, him. I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. Well, he gave me a better shift. Uh-huh. And I'm like, all right, well, this is okay. <laughs> And then uh, we started up a heavy metal uh, AM station back in Buffalo. And AM they, station, that was heavy metal. Yeah, That's and it weird. was heavy metal all day long. That's so funny. It was great. It was called 14X uh, Rebel Radio. And um, so we started that up. And here I am making five bucks an hour. I quit the uh, job <laughs> at you know doing the custodial stuff. And I started working in radio, not knowing what was going to happen. And that kind of, you know, you know, just started to snowball and... And then I went over to the FM station after the AM station went away. And, and then when I was let go in June of 1995, I'd kind of like, <clears throat> I felt like it kind of ran, the, I'd run my course there. I wasn't, I didn't like the boss. And, um, you know, I was like looking for something new. <clears throat> and so it was like one of those things where it's like, you know, Buffalo had kind of, kind of fizzled out for me because there was nothing else available, you know. So I started looking around, spent the summer of 1995 looking for gigs. Thought I had one in like the uh, mid-state New York, and I, w- I wasn't really crazy about it. And I was thinking on it, and then I was watching the O.J. Simpson stuff, and I got a call from uh, Detroit, Doug Podell, saying, hey, how would you like to come to Detroit? And I'm like, well, I'm not doing anything right now. And so <laughs> I went to Detroit. Let me think about it. <laughs> yeah. And so it was funny because I left my house. In the middle of, you know, a cornfield behind my house and the whole thing at like 9 o'clock in the morning. Next thing you know, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm out in Southfield by Telegraph in 96 going, I'm just a dumb country kid. I don't know where I'm going. There's one-way streets. I'm like losing my mind. And uh, so they said, when can you start? I said, eh, how's November 1st? So I'm driving into work the first day I started. And I had this little CB radio in my car to entertain myself on the long drives back and forth. And uh, I'll never forget a truck driver driving. It's, it's Halloween night. I thought the city was going to be burning down. <laughs> <laughs> like, what did I get into? I know. It. But I was driving down uh, up Telegraph Road. But I was staying in a, down in South Southgate, and I couldn't believe all the lights triggered all the way there. I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. And I, I got to work and went on after Ann Carlini at 2 a.m., and that's where it started. So. It sounds like you had a pretty good attitude about Detroit coming in. Like, a lot of people who've never been to Detroit, they just... They just buy the bullshit that's been permeated around about how bad Detroit is. And they don't really know how cool Detroit oh, is. Oh, no, Detroit's great. But you know what? Trust me. Um, you know, uh, we were riding our motorcycles back home in Buffalo, and it was raining. And this was after I had gotten the job. I had a couple weeks. And one of my friends said, 
Yeah, meltdown, you're dodging raindrops now. We pulled into a bar, and he goes, in Detroit, she'll be dodging a 38. <laughs> That's true in some parts, of course. <laughs> you know, I always thought that you were kind of built for riff because you you come from, um, you know, a, a blue-collar city, but you come in riding your Harley, yeah. you loving NASCAR, yeah. you loving uh, big-time wrestling, you're a massive hockey fan, and this is in 1995 when the, the wings were just getting ready to hit the apex, yeah. and the, the city was just bubbling over. I like to consider that I'm the one who pushed them over the edge. You, I, I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> it was really interesting timing, but I, I think that because you, you just identify naturally with our listeners, that I think it, it was fairly natural for you to connect with them. Well, when I came in, I was doing overnight. So I got hired to do 2 a.m. to 5.30. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Mark Thompson, do you remember him? Oh, yeah. So Mark he looks Thompson. looks like Kato Kalen. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so Mark left, and then they switched the shifts around. So I think at the time, Arthur was doing 2, 2 p.m. to 6. Mm-hmm. And so then they, they switched the shifts around. And now I got bumped up to midnight to 5.30, and they brought in Kelly Walker to do 7 to midnight. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing the overnight show, and I, I, I nicknamed it the overnight domination. And at the time... Uh, the, the baseball player from Seattle was real popular, the big unit. So I'm like, well, why is he the – I can be the big unit too. So I became Meltdown the big unit. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. And so uh, it, was, it was kind of a joke So I'm five foot six, You know, we're just goofing off, you know. Right. And so um, I'm throwing everything I can at the wall. And I still get people to this day that were listening to the, to the show because uh, I don't really want to get into too much about what I did on, on the air at nights. But there was, there was girls and maybe a few more girls here and there and <laughs> – Remember all the taco girls? And, yeah, yeah, taco <laughs> girl, yeah. And, uh, you know, we would do all sorts of dumb things. And, uh, you know, I don't, I, I know the boss didn't like it very much, but I'm like, you know. You sleeping. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I'm like, I didn't just move 300, you know, 300 miles to, to just, you know, do nothing, you know. Did you ever get used to those hours? Those are really tough hours. You know, the, the, thing, that, the thing that was really hard about it for me was when I would get home, like when I first got here. Of course, I'm excited. It's a new town, new city, the whole thing. But I would get home, and I would listen to Drew and Mike. Next thing you know, it's like eight in the morning. I'm like, I gotta shut this off because right. they were so like intriguing, you know? <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And I get out here and I'm driving around town and there's like six rock stations. I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. You know, we had so much so much so many rock stations, yeah. you know. And uh it was all new and fresh and then, you know, I'm going places with, you know, Trudy and limousines and stuff and you know, it was like uh I I think the twenty fifth anniversary bash or one of the bashes, I don't think I was here for the twenty fifth, but one of the bashes was Really, really fun down at the at the Fillmore, which was uh, the State Theater then, um, you know. But yeah, getting used to the times, it was a little bit crazy. But um, you did third shifter parties too, didn't you? Yeah, those were off the hook. Well, I started those in March, and apparently Nick Demos had done them, mm-hmm. and I kind of replaced him at night. And it was it was like really bad timing. I don't know if you remember this, but, but like a week before my first third shifter party, he died. Yeah, and it's like. It was so sad. Yeah, and I never met him. I didn't know him. I, I, I had nothing to do with anything. But now all of a sudden I'm doing these third shifter parties. He kind of started, and I'm like, right? Oh man, it's like you know, this is this is tough. Yeah, totally. But they were fun, and uh, you know, what, so thir- so we'll just explain. Third shifter parties were parties that would begin at seven a.m. Yeah. in the morning because you could start serving alcohol at seven a.m. Yeah, and they were at bikini bars. Yeah, at, at bikini bars, yeah. and everyone would be working all night, and they would get off work, and for like the first time, these people who are working overnight can actually have like a regular thing. Yeah. Like, let's get off work and party, and 
I've never seen so many people party like that at 7 well, o'clock in the morning. Well, then I would be talking about it all night long on my show. And, like, for example, the one time I had Tawny Peaks in the studio, oh, yeah. and she's doing uh, push-ups with uh, paint on her boobs and, and, and riff uh, posters and stuff. And so then people would hear this on the radio, and they'd come and I'd auction them off for charity or tips or whatever. You know, it's the whole thing. It was, it was like, it's like out of control. Coming up. The best year of hockey I ever had was during the lockout in 2004-2005. And uh, my friend Brian Smolinski invited me out in October or something. He says, uh, yeah, come on out, you know, whatever. And, you know, Lindstrom and Chelios and Draper and Hatcher wow. and Aaron Ward and Manny Legacy. Then I, Iserman played a few times and, you know, D-Mac would come out and guys like that. And it was so much fun. And uh, we played and I got, I mean, I, I could tell you stories all day long about uh, playing with those guys. And but, you got ice time playing with those guys? Oh, yeah. We were playing four and four. just pick up, you know. My name is Chuck Bean, and I'm the host of the Nerd Radio Podcast. Each week, I get together with my co-hosts, Al Beck and James, to discuss all sorts of topics, from the latest headlines in the worlds of comics, video games, and pro wrestling, to what games or shows we're currently in the middle of. Whether it's anime, tabletop gaming, the latest comic book-related movies or television shows, if you've been made fun of for it, we're probably going to talk about it. Stream Nerd Radio at WRIF.com and all the same places you listen to this podcast. BackstageCountry.com, your online home for all things country music. Country music has so many generous artists who always seem to jump in to help those in need. We're spotlighting five who lead by example and lend a helping hand to charitable causes. See who made our list when you text GIVE to 45911. Text GIVE to 45911 and read all about it right now on BackstageCountry.com. This is the History of WRIF, the podcast. Nothing frosts my ass more than watching Sidney Crosby carry the Holy Grail, the Stanley Cup, around our ice surface on Friday night. Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. I just want you to know that I'm a child of God. And if you're not praying for me, you're part of the problem. If you don't know me, don't comment on things I do. Here is Mike Staff with our special guest, Meltdown. What did you think of Drew and Mike when you first got to Riff? Because when you got here, they were just really hitting their stride. Well, like I said, I get home and it's like I, I couldn't shut them off. So you knew they were good. You thought, wow, this station's got a great morning show. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Well, when I first got there, I think... I had met Drew and Mike like the first day I interviewed, and then I met Arthur too. Because you know Drew and Mike would be there till you know, sometimes four or five in the afternoon, right? Mostly between like one and like three. Yeah. You know, uh, but well, uh, what people don't know about Drew and Mike is forty man hours went into every one four hour show or five hour. Yeah, show they worked. They, they worked a lot, and I, I, I tell people a lot about this is that uh, you know I le- I think I learned more from Drew than anybody else in this business, and it all it wasn't always talking to him. It was a lot of listening. Yeah, right. Because just the way that he would, like, you know, uh, pre-tape interviews or the way he would lead interviews or whatever, he was, he, he was really skilled. And so I'd listen to that. Yeah. And I would be like, uh, okay, I'd, I'd pick up things just yeah, from yeah. listening to him. Yeah. You know. So how long did you do overnights, Meltdown? So I did overnights, I want to say, for two years. And then what happened was uh, our sister station, 105.1, became The Edge. Oh, I was trying to remember what happened. Yeah, and yeah. then Kelly Walker went to The went Edge. Went to The Edge, and did, she did afternoons there, didn't she? Something like yeah. that, yeah. And so then Kelly went to The Edge. And Kelly was awesome. Yeah. She was so cool. And so then I went to 7 at Midnight, and I stayed there for, uh, I think, 10 or 11 years. Mm-hmm. So um, That was know. a really good shift for you at that time. Oh, for sure. I mean, 
you know, mandatory Metallica, you know, that was, you know, Nightmare oh, yeah. stuff, and we did we did a bunch of that stuff, but I, yeah, and I liked all the music, you know, it was a lot of the newer stuff, and yeah, it was... Yeah, harder, uh, a little bit harder at night. Yeah. The thing, though, with uh, with that was that I missed a lot of the concerts and a lot of the events and, and different things along those lines, but uh, I... Uh, but Riff always made it a priority to, um, to be where their listeners were, whether yeah. it's going to be bars or concerts, sporting events, uh, it, it didn't really matter, and you had an opportunity to broadcast live at a lot of different places in that ship though didn't you yeah some of the places you know like um like for example like you know in mount clemens stuff i wasn't crazy about it It really wasn't like my cup of tea because it was like kind of like a dance night type thing Mm -hmm. uh but it was cool to get out of the studio right um and see people well and you know if if they're playing dance music the girls are going to come and dance yeah no the guys will follow and that's how it is no doubt (laughs) yeah so it's weird because now in this time i was thinking about this earlier it's like you know, um, when you go to restaurants or something after they opened up after, after a couple months, it's like people are like more welcoming and more, and they're just nicer and there's a better disposition, right? Yeah, yeah. And I and it's like I'm thinking I haven't seen some of my friends, uh, you know, like uh, some of the listeners, as outside of social media, you know, some of them since last year. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the guys from from the bike nights and different things. Yeah. So it's like it's it's a weird time for sure, but it's a weird time for everybody. Yeah. Have you been in the studio the whole time through COVID? Yeah, uh, through COVID. Yeah, I went. I, I was in the studio, and um, you know, I guess that's where I'm, you know, most comfortable. And I know that there's a lot of people out there that were, uh, you know, taping their shows or doing it from home or whatever the case is. Which um, is cool to have the technology. Yeah, to be able I mean to that's do fine. That. I, you know, I got nothing against that. That's mm-hmm. fine. But it's like uh, I really like kind of like driving the ship yeah. from the. What do they call that? The, the deck of the USS Enterprise or whatever. <laughs> That's what it feels like in the Rift Studios yeah. for sure. I give props to Steve Black on that one since he's probably, you know, <laughs> the Star Trek stuff. But I really like to be in the studio and, uh, you know, a little bit of inside baseball. They changed our system around right before this happened. So I was still getting used to everything. You know, there was a lot of stuff that, you know, it took me a, a solid three weeks to even just figure out how this new board ran and everything else yeah. like that. So. We're talking to Meltdown. It's the history of WRIF. We have got a pretty good uh, good deal going right now. We're sitting on the banks of Long Lake in Traverse City, Michigan. Meltdown brought up this uh, blackened Metallica whiskey. Yours is getting watered down. I like it sometimes when you get a little bit of water in there. You know? <laughs> you're not keeping up. I'm going to be ahead of you in yeah, a minute. Well, you're, you're, yours, all the ice is gone out of yours. It is. I got I to gotta keep up, too. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I uh, I do uh, I do like a good whiskey, and that's uh, really good. I've become friends with uh, Rob Dietrich, the guy who's the master distiller at a Black End. And, uh, you know, they, they make this whiskey, not to get too crazy, but they make this, this whiskey by playing Metallica songs, and it vibrates the, the barrels. Come and the, on. And, yeah, and then whiskey goes in and out of the wood. That's That's how they make it. I love this whiskey even more now. Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying this is accessible all over? Yeah, I think so. I got it down in uh, in Detroit at the uh, Wine Palace at 96 in uh, Mid- uh, Middleville, which you can get anything at that place. Not right. To, they don't give me anything to, to plug that place, but you can get anything <laughs> there, anything. So I, I was trying to think about Harley Fest, and if, if my recollection serves me well, I think we started Harley Fest in 2002. It's probably about right. Yeah. yeah sure. What do you remember about Harley Fest? Because that was such a cool event Yeah, that for event, the like... Yeah, that event like kind of just blew up out of nowhere. I remember, I think the first one. I know there was a wrestler involved, and I can't remember his name, but they uh, the WCW or something sent some guys out, if I if I recall correctly. Um, you know, and uh, that was at the was I want to say it was like at the state fairgrounds. The first one, I was wondering if it was at Freedom Hill. I was hoping you can remember. 
I know for a fact I have a picture, and it wasn't at Freedom Hill. But it was at Freedom Hill for many years, and they once it left Freedom Hill, kind of it, it was kind of tough to get it, you know, to get it going back. But yeah, yeah Freedom Hill is a perfect fun. location for yeah. us. It was great, you know, and, and people were coming in and out all day long. And then we had the, the bands and the concerts and giving away the motorcycles. And, uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a really, really fun event every single year. What do you think it is about Harleys and rock and roll that just um, is such a good mix? I don't know. You know, one, one of my friends told me one time that it'll get in your blood. And he told me yeah. this after I got my first Harley. And I thought to myself, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> here we are. You know. <laughs> It's like when I got married 20 years ago, I told my wife, I said, I do two things. I play hockey, and I ride Harley Davidson. So if you can handle those two things, and I still do both those things. So, so. when you you play a lot of hockey, you, you, you were playing a bunch of pickup hockey, and yeah. I know that you've played hockey. Like, you're a pretty good amateur hockey player, but you're playing with, are you playing with the Red Wings or former Wings? Well, or some of them, like John O'Grodnick plays, and you know, a couple skates I do, Wayne Presley, some uh, different guys like that, but, you know, the best year of hockey I ever had was during the lockout in 2004-2005, and uh, my friend Brian Smolinski invited me out in October or something. He says, uh, yeah, come on out, you know, whatever. And, you know, Lindstrom and Chelios and Draper and Hatcher wow. and Aaron Ward and Manny Legacy. Then I, Iserman played a few times, and, you know, D-Mac would come out and guys like that. And it was so much fun, and uh, we played, and I got, I mean, I, I could tell you stories all day long about uh, playing with those guys. And but, you got ice time playing with those guys? Oh, Yeah. We were playing four and four, just pick up, you know. And you can just you you realize how good they are and how fast they are. Oh and how yeah, strong they you know, are. Yeah, they were on a different level, and I, sure. I just I just did my best to try to you know I'm not slow the game down. That right. was my only goal, you know. Right. Just play, don't slow the game down, have fun, you know, and don't like, uh, you know, don't don't stick out. You know what I'm saying? Well, Darren McCarty said that you absolutely held your own and that you had respect from everyone out there. Um, well. He's, he's being kind, I think. <laughs> Maybe he is. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, you know, um, I made some lasting memories, uh, met some people. Uh, I became, you know, pretty good friends with Nick Lindstrom. He didn't live too far away from me. And uh, he did he did some favors for me here and there. And, you know, uh, Vinnie Paul was a big hockey fan. And, and I, mm. I, I did an interview with him one time. And I, I, I asked him a question. I felt I kind of overstepped my bounds. And it was about his brother's funeral and how they didn't invite Phil, the singer from Pantera, mm-hmm. there. and he goes, "Yeah, I don't really want to comment on that." And so I, I cut that out of the interview because I thought, "Yeah, you know what? That was probably over over the line." I wanted to make up for it, so I went to Nick's house one day and he signed a, a picture, an eight by ten. I had a frame, gave it to Vinny, and that's kind of when we became friends because nice. I felt bad. And Vinny was like, "Yeah, you don't have to feel bad about that, you know." And yeah, you don't really, really nice know. Like you're that. not trying to, you know, you're not trying to step over the bound. No, Just asking a question. I think at the time I kind of uh, wanted to kind of. I don't know if I wanted to, you know, kind of make a name for myself or, or do whatever, but it's like... Or ask the question that everyone was wondering. Perhaps, but it was a little bit over the line, and Vinny's a super nice guy, yeah. and he was great, and we, like I said, we kind of became friends, and we really bonded over hockey. A week before he died was when the uh, Vegas Golden Knights lost the Stanley Cup, and he must have texted me for an hour, you know, just uh, <laughs> about, you know, whatever, because that was his team, you know, yeah. one of his teams. Coming up. It's the same thing when, when I was, uh, when I'd come on after our... When I come on after Arthur, you guys you know, had great crossovers. Well, the thing amazing. was, was that for a little while, I'm like, okay, I got to give this guy respect. He's like a legend, you know, the yeah. whole thing. And he was, and he, <laughs> he is, right? You got to give him respect. After a while, I'm like, hey, wait a minute, I'm on the radio too. Right. I'm gonna start firing back at him. <laughs> so once I started firing back at him, then things got really interesting. And I thought that's when we had like 
the most fun. Yeah, you know? totally. That well, that's when those crossovers went to the the best level it could have gone to for sure. Yeah, and it's like I wasn't trying to make him look bad, but I'm like, wait a minute, I got to stand up for myself well, too. Art can take a joke. <laughs> oh, for sure. He, and he's gonna fire back. Yeah. So he probably had more respect for you when you started to do that. Yeah, you know? I think so. Yeah, and, you know, Art, you know, Art's he's always been a great guy to me. He just texted great me guy. the other day, and it's like, uh, you know, a legend. I mean, you know, look. He, he's in the Radio Hall of Fame or everything. Mm-hmm. You, know, you had Fred Jacobs on in the Radio Hall of Fame. Tom mm-hmm. Bender, who you had on, I have great respect for. Backstagecountry.com, your online home for all things country music. Award-winning movies often have incredible soundtracks, and many of those have gone on to become country gold. We've picked our top five country songs that have been nominated for an Oscar. Text OSCAR to 45911 to see if your favorite made the list on BackstageCountry.com. Text OSCAR to 45911, and we'll send the link straight to your phone. This is the History of WRIF, the podcast. I just get off stage in Kentucky, in Louisville, and I was having a couple bourbons with um, Fred No. We had just toured the Jim Beam factory, you know, which I got to deal with. And so we were over there, we were having a good time. Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. And all of a sudden I get this three-alarm phone call at like midnight when I'm feeling pretty good. And it's Pat McGinnis, who's Dan Gilbert's right-hand guy, you know, saying, you know, Dan's freaking out right now and he's trying to negotiate this deal with the DSO and he came up with this idea, would you play a concert, you know, and we can raise him a million dollars in one night. And I'm like, yeah, man, let's do it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I'm like, uh, for who? What, what is it? <laughs> the next day, like, yeah, you agreed to play with an orchestra. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that Jim Beam is good stuff. Here is Mike Staff with our special guest, Meltdown. So in 2009, Arthur P. Um, and Riff just weren't able to come to a contract agreement. And for the first time in almost 40 years, Arthur P. was not on afternoon drive. Yeah. And you got a highly coveted air shift. And I know that was very bittersweet because you and I are both very good friends with Arthur and have deep respect for him. Yeah, so that's got to be a very weird situation to be in. Well, I was in Los I was in Los Angeles at the uh, at the Grammys, and I would I did that for a couple of years where you go there and you interview these D list celebrities, then you go to the Grammys. Right, know? right. D list. Yeah. And so, anyways, like they, a, uh, Alyssa Milano. And stuff yeah, like yeah. She was never there, but uh, yeah. But anyway, so they they called me up and it was like um, it was I don't know Saturday or Sunday. Somebody called me from the station. Hey, when are you gonna be back in uh, Detroit? I said, you know, whatever day, Monday or Tuesday, or whatever. Well, listen, you're gonna be doing afternoons until further notice. I'm like, all right. And this was in February. You didn't ask, did you? No. Yeah. I, I just like okay. Sure, whatever you need. Yeah, I mean, I might have asked. I can't remember, yeah. but uh, so I'm like, okay, fine. I'll. Uh, I'll be there. And so then uh, I think it was uh, April and they announced that uh, it was going to be, uh, you know, me in the afternoon drive, screaming Scott at night, and then uh, Ann. See, I, I was thinking about this earlier that I think that I was under the impression that they were going to move me to middays and maybe move Podell over to CSX or whatever. I had, I had no inkling that I was going to be doing an afternoon drive. Um, I can't recall exactly why I was thinking that, but there was rumblings that, that – something like that was going to happen. I, I, I was like, there's no way they're going to put me in afternoon drive. Not a chance. You yeah. know? And it took me a little while because I felt like for the first, maybe even year or so, it's like, this isn't my shift. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just kind of 
warm in the seat. And after yeah, a little while, it. it's like you got to take the bull by the horns <laughs> and say, this is my shift now, you know. It's the same thing when, when I was uh, when I'd come on after Arthur. When I come on after Arthur, you guys you know, had great crossovers. Well, the Just thing amazing. was was that for a little while, I'm like, okay, I got to give this guy respect. He's like a legend, you know, the yep. whole thing. And he was, and he, <laughs> he is, right? You got to give him respect. After a while, I'm like, hey, wait a minute, I'm on the radio too. Right. <laughs> I'm gonna start firing back at him. So once I started firing back at him, then things got really interesting. And I thought that's when we had like the most fun. Yeah, you know? totally. That well, that's when those crossovers went to the the best level it could have gone to for sure. Yeah, and it's like I wasn't trying to make him look bad, but I'm like, wait a minute, I got to stand up for myself well, too. Art, Art can take a joke. <laughs> oh, for he, sure. And he's gonna fire back. Yeah. So he probably had more respect for you when you started to do that. Yeah, you know? I think so. Yeah, and, you know, Art. You know, Art's. He's always been a great guy to me. He just texted great me guy. the other day, and it's like, uh, you know, a legend. I mean, you know, look. He's in the Radio Hall of Fame. Or mm-hmm. everything. You, know, you had Fred Jacobs on in the Radio Hall of Fame. Tom yeah. Bender, who you had on, I have great respect for. Of course. You know, Tom Bender told me a few things that I know saved me a lot of stomach lining. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I mean, for real. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, to be surrounded by those kind of people with, uh, with Art and then, you know, Drew and Mike and, you know, Ann and, and just everybody. It's like, as far as radio is concerned, it's really cool. And, it, it, you know, I, I, I have this uh, little... This little card back home at, at my house. I say back home because we're up in Traverse City <laughs> now, but at my house. In Detroit. Right. And uh, it comes from the program director back home. And I did this thing on the radio for them. It was called Veteran DJ Day. And mm. like it was like Veteran Day, yep. Veterans Day. And so they uh, had all these older DJs on, like say older, but like they weren't on the radio anymore in Buffalo. They bring them back for a weekend shift. So I taped something for them. That's and cool. um, his name's John Hager. And he sent me a little, he sent me a 97 Rock t-shirt. Because I told him, I said, that's what I want. I want a 97 Rock t-shirt to do this, you know. <laughs> He's like, okay, no problem. And so he You're sent, easy. Right. <laughs> and so he sent me this card with his, you know, with his, like, uh, name and stuff on it. And it says, it's always great to hear Meltdown on the radio. And I, I saved that because it was almost like yesterday when I was trying to get on the radio. Yeah, isn't And now it's crazy? been 30 years, you know. Yeah, it's so. definitely, sometimes you have to pinch yourself and ask yourself, like, how did I get here? You know, I, I think about this. Uh, so, look, I, I have my podcast, right, which I'm really super proud of. It's called uh, Talk and Rock with Meltdown. And when I first started my podcast about five years ago, my goal was to do one interview a week. So 52 interviews. Mm-hmm. At the and time, that's I, ambitious. Well, at the time, I wasn't doing any, right? Right. So I call in some favors here and there. I think the first one I might have done was uh, was with uh, Chris Henderson from Three Doors Down. So I knew him a little bit, and I'm like, hey, would you be on my podcast? He's like, yeah, absolutely. Well, then the ball starts rolling, right? So I'm thinking if I can do, if I want to do 52, and I get to like 37, well, that's better than 20, right? Sure. So now I do like 90 podcasts a year, mm. right? Or thereabouts. And some of them have two interviews, yeah. you know? So I interviewed Rick Emmett the other day, like I was telling you. Yeah, and just for the record, I'm a big fan. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Rick Emmett of the band Triumph from I'm not going to tell you what Mike was, you know. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I, I was thinking, you know, there's there's people out there that make a lot more money than me, that live in bigger houses than me, and, and, and you know, uh, and whatever. But at the same point, it's like, I get to do this right, for a man. living. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, when I'm talking to Rick Emmett, I'm like, this is a guy I grew up listening to. And every once in a while, I have these uh, interviews where I'm like, 
Oh, I listened to him as a kid. Yeah. And I was just getting into the business. Right. And some of them I've interviewed several times, some of them just once or twice. Some mm-hmm. of them kind of know me a little bit, you know? Yeah. When Sammy Hagar's on, hey, meltdown, you know, or whatever. That's cool, right? Yeah, it is way cool. So it's like, you know, other people may have, you know, uh, you know, bigger bank accounts or whatever the case is, but I get to go to work every day and sometimes talk to childhood heroes. Right. Well, the truth is, too, is that the access that you get, you can't buy. There's no amount of money that somebody can, well, there's probably an amount well, of money. Well, nowadays you can buy for sure, like 2500 bucks. Yeah, yeah right. You can buy just minutes, about anything, you know? yeah. but you're still getting paid to go and talk to these rock legends, to be able to be a part of this rock and roll community that so many people are trying so hard just to get a backstage pass or good tickets for something. Right. And you can't, like, so I've been out of radio for 14 years. I miss the access that I used to have. And that, to me, like, was worth all the money that I didn't make because it was so worth it. Yeah, you know, it's like we were talking about earlier. It's like, you know, when when I get to take my kids to... To not only go to the shows, but then meet some of these guys. Yeah. And to go with your kids is a totally different level. No question about it. It's like, really, I don't forget any of that stuff, you know? And um, I don't want to spoil my kids, per se, but at the Mm -hmm. same time, it's like, I want to... It's it's like when I take friends somewhere. It's right. like I'm I'm sharing my experiences with somebody else. Right, yeah. Whether it's my kids or my friends. Yeah. And, and it's like, I've gone to a lot of concerts, hung out by myself, don't ever. But I, I love taking my friends. It is. Especially the ones that really appreciate it. It's something that you just, like you said, you can't buy. You're, you can't buy. You know, uh, Riff used to do this thing, show us, your, and maybe they still do, but it's uh, show us your Riff. And if you're wearing your Riff gear at a concert, then you might end up in the front row. Right. And there are so many times where, um, I mean, we got we are spoiled in radio where we'd get great seats, front row seats or whatever. Yeah. And there's times that I had to get up early in the morning, so I'd go out and watch the band for a couple shows, a, a couple songs, and then I would go to the back row. Right. Yep. And if somebody's wearing a Riff shirt, say, hey, man, boom, you're going to the right, front right, row. Right, right, right. It is so much fun to yeah. do that. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, Kid Rock would give me these these escort passes, you know. And it's like if you showed up at the venue, I could just walk you in, like even if you have a ticket, right? But I never took advantage of it. I did one time. My <laughs> wife would watch um, do daycare, right? And uh, there was this uh, there was this girl that she watched. Uh, she's got like a muscular dystrophy, mm. right? And she was up in the handicap section, right? And I said to her mom, and at the time she was like maybe in her early twenties at, at the time. It was a Kid Rock show, and I said, hey. Uh, you think she'd want to go up to the front row? She goes, oh, yeah, she would. I go, eh, three or four songs, whatever. So I took her, and she was practically leaning on the stage. That's the only time I ever did that, like, with Kid Rock. But I have done stuff what you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It's a blast. I'm leaving at something early, and I give somebody my tickets. I do it all the time. Yeah, because you know fun. what? You want to let them share it, too. Yep, totally. And the experience. Yep. Yeah. So you've gotten to know Kid Rock pretty good. Do you remember the first time you met him or the first time you actually connected? Like, whoa, wait a second, I'm actually friends with this guy. I No, I, I definitely remember the first time I met him. It was um, uh, his debut record, well, uh, Devil Without a Cause had just come out. And yep. the Devil Without a Cause um, came out, I want to say, in... 98? Yeah, it was 1998, so I met him in January of 1999. So he's at the station doing Rockline. Oh, yeah, I remember yeah. that. And I'll never forget this for the rest of my life because no one's ever said this to me. So I meet him, and at the time we were only playing uh, Bull God, which I thought was a little bit Rage Against the Machine. I wasn't really crazy about it. Oh, I loved it. And so anyways, I mean, I thought it was good. Yeah, of course. But I wasn't as crazy as when I heard Bada Bada. That yeah, was yeah, like, yeah. that song right there just turned me around. Right, right? totally. 
So I said to him, I go, uh, I'm talking to him and stuff. And because you're running the board during this national broadcast. Well, I had just gotten off the air at 1130. Okay. And so then they kind of take over. So he's in the station talking to the guy in Los Angeles. Got it. And they, they hook him up via satellite. Yeah. So he said to me, he goes, uh, hey, you should listen to the rest of the record. You might like it. I'm, I never forgot that because at the time, people were like, we're going to be the next big thing. This is going to be the greatest thing you've ever heard, you know, in the whole thing, right? And I'm like, huh, Okay. So a months, yeah, a couple months later, I, I'm playing Ba to Ba on the radio. I'm like, oh, my God. This is amazing, right? <laughs> and so then I uh, I listened to the record and, you know, over and over. Every and over. song was so good. Yeah, it took me about five months to realize I had the edited version. There wasn't even two songs oh. on there, you know? <laughs> That's no fun. Right. And so then I interviewed him at the Palace. So now it's October of 1999. He sells out the Palace. October know? of 99. That was his first arena Big, I'm in, not mistaken in I was one. trying to wonder I'm and then he, then he played the, uh, the the Metallica show at the end that's of the year that's right yep and so I went to that show and I'll never forget where, where I, it was like the after party or whatever and he introduced me to Lars so I'd met a few times but I'm not going to tell him that and I, right. I don't know if Lars knew who I was I mean I'd <laughs> met him before but it had been a while and uh, as a matter of fact I'm walking up the stairs and uh, I'm walking, and Damon Johnson from Brother Kane's walking yeah. next to me, who's become a really good friend of mine. He played for Alice Cooper and all these guys. And uh, Damon brings it up to me sometimes. But Kid Rock's like, hey, Lars, this is my friend Meltdown, you know, and the whole thing. And it was really cool. So we've kind of been friends ever since then. And I'll tell you what, I can't say a bad word about the guy. And he gives and does more for things. He's done it for me, for one of my friends. I don't want to get into the whole long story, but one of my friends got severely injured at his concert. No doing of his own. And um, my and, and Kid Rock, uh, not only did he, you know, financially help him out a little wow, bit. Oh, no kidding! He, uh, we all he when he opened up those shows at, at Little Little Caesars. Yep, I was there. Yeah, we. I was at Rock's house one night. It was it was in May before that, and I said, "Hey, let's call up my friend Jason who had gotten hurt." And he, we called him up, and I said, "Jason, you." And he was in Alabama. Jason, you got to get up here for these shows. Rock took care of him and his family, did everything. And you know what? I went up to thank him. He goes, eh, we just, we don't thank, you know, we don't, need, we don't need thanks. Just be nice to people or whatever. That's the kind of guy he is. And I know he'll, he probably doesn't want me talking about that, but that's how he is. Yeah, well, what's cool is that he understands the impact that he can make. And he For also sure. gets that he's got a responsibility to take advantage of that. And he does. He, he gives a lot more than people know. Yep. And like, like I said, he just stopped me. He goes, he goes, we don't need thanks, we just help people. That's you know? so And it's cool. like, that's what he does. So cool. So, yeah, but he's, uh, he's always been great. He's been great to, you know, me and my kids. And I'll never say a bad word about him. I, uh, I was just texting him the other day, you know, and he's, it's just, you know, that's, I'm not going to, you know, sit there. Yeah. So we are sitting on the, on the lake in Traverse City. We're drinking some whiskey. I'm ready for a fresh air. Are you? Let's do it. <laughs> We're done with the Metallica. Uh, whiskey. We gotta crack open this this bottle of JD. <laughs> Let's crank it open. You gotta drink the rest of that. Dude. Yeah, I'm good here. <laughs> You're good. I'm trying, I'm trying to chill here, man. You don't, you don't know what I did last night. <laughs> I know. I was with you too. Jack is always good. I'm good for right now. Okay. Yeah. So meltdown. Just being in the position that you're in, in being on the riff in the rock and roll world, have there ever been any like, wow, I can't <laughs> believe this moment is actually happening to me? Moments. Oh well, listen, trust me. Um, the, I'll, I'll never forget. Like I interviewed Rob Zombie years ago, and he put it on his web page, 
And at that moment, I'm like, oh, cool. Hey, wait a minute. I, I, like I said, I'm just a kid from the outskirts of Buffalo. This <laughs> this is not happening to me. It's like this shouldn't happen, you know? Right on. And then it's like uh, we were talking earlier that I got to do this thing on stage with Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine in front of 300 people for like mm. an hour and a half. And I... It was like it was like kind of like you know Tom, this is your life, and he would show pictures and stuff. Oh, really? Where was that? That was at the L Club in Southwest Detroit. And that okay. was I want to say December of 2018. And he is one of the best good, good guitar players ever. And he's such a nice guy. You know, yeah. he's, he's a really really nice guy. And and so then um like that uh I mean you know Slash comes to town and he and he does this acoustic thing for us at this uh, club in Royal Oak uh, back in the day. Um, you know um. I got to go on stage at Comerica Park uh, before Metallica. Oh, jeez. And I got a picture from behind, and every seat in that stadium is full. And I'm like, I just can't even believe it. You're like, how did I end up on stage before Metallica? Trust me. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and so the, I'll never forget, I, I interviewed uh, uh, Mixmaster Mike before that, like about a month before that or something. And he says uh, he was DJing between sets. Yeah. And he says, I like to consider myself the... Uh, the high-powered appetizer. And I'm like, wow, that's great, right? And so anyways, I, I took out a pen, and I wrote high-powered appetizer on my hand, like around my around my thumb and my, my, my index finger. And so when I nice. held the mic up, and I'm introducing Mixmaster Mike, I'm like, hey, everybody, get ready for your high-powered appetizer. I'm looking at my hand. <laughs> that is <laughs> so awesome. I didn't want to forget about it. So cool. But, so, you know, 20, so 25 years, you've had more. Tell us more. Oh, my God. I mean, just... Uh, you know, interviewing Ozzy at Kobo uh, before he went on stage in December of 2001 was great. I got to... Did you understand what he was saying? Uh, you know, it's funny. I've interviewed Ozzy a few times, and it's like sometimes I listen back, and I'm like, God, I missed what he... I, I didn't catch that, you know, the first time. Through. <laughs> right, right. But he's super nice, and it's like he's exactly like you'd think he'd be. I had a chance to interview Ozzy once on the phone, and thank God Sharon was on the phone, too, uh, because she, like, interpreted half the stuff that he said. Oh, yeah. But it was still like, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe I'm talking. Well, so I'm a huge Ozzy fan, or at least I grew up. Like, Crazy Train was, like, really the, the oh, yeah. um, that's the song that changed my life. Yep. Right? And you and I agree that Randy Rhodes, one of the best guitar players yeah. ever. Yep. So I, I was a kid. I heard uh, this kid back home in school, his name was Terry. He says, hey, you should hear this Ozzy guy. And I'm, like, in seventh grade or something. I'm like, all right. So I go home that night, and I heard Crazy Train. Bam. Yeah. Complete Hooked. U-turn. Yeah. Yep. It was like, that was it. Yeah. So fast forward. I'm supposed to meet Ozzy a bunch of times. You know how Ozzy is. He's like... He cancels or gets sick or the tour drops, whatever. There's numerous right. instances. Right, there's drama. Yeah. So anyways, I come to Detroit, and um, we're doing this contest around, I think it was 1996 or something. And uh, you get you get to fly out to Cincinnati with some winners, you know, in a Learjet. Yeah, I remember that contest. That yeah. was sweet. So we fly out there, and, and I've never even, I'd never even flown before. And I'm in this Learjet nose. Now you're in like a limo in the sky. And I'm like, right. this is crazy, right? So the, the pilots give their speeches uh, between the, the front seats, sitting on a couple cases of beer. We take off out of Oakland. We head down, and we land in Cincinnati. Well, we land, and we land next to Ozzy's plane. And we're, wow. and we're in this little tiny terminal. Did I ever tell you a story before? No, I've never heard this. So, it's great. Yeah, so we're in this little tiny terminal. And... Uh, there's this big guy in there. He's got a black T-shirt on, laminates and stuff. I said, yeah, we just flew in from Detroit. We're here to see Ozzy, you know, and the whole thing. Oh, cool, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And so we go to the show, and uh, I tell everybody that I'm with, there's about five people I was with, and I said, hey, listen, we got to race back in the limo to get to that airport before Ozzy comes back because I want to meet him, you know? <laughs> and they're, like, all about it. They're, like, sure, no problem. So 
we race back to this little tiny terminal at private airport, and here comes Ozzy. And he's he's like he's like stumbling by, and his his, his assistant's kind of like pushing us aside, like you, you know we're you know you guys you know just move aside. We're gonna yeah, walk you're not going to meet Ozzy, right? So anyhow, Ozzy gets on his plane. We're all a little bit bummed out, but we got to see him up close, and it was kind of cool. Yeah, very cool. So I'm sitting on the on the plane, and all of a sudden I look over, and Ozzy's walking back over towards our plane, and I'm like, guys, Ozzy's coming back here, and all of a sudden we get up and we wa- race out the door. And the guy who I talked to earlier with the black shirt on now has his flight suit on. He's, he's the pilot. <laughs> and he goes, I told Ozzy you guys came in from Detroit. And he said we should come over and talk to him. That is unbelievable. He thought that we were just like local fans or something. Right. And so anyway, so I, so I meet him. And I, I take a picture with him and a couple of the winners and stuff. And I sent it out on a Christmas card. <laughs> I got that Christmas card. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, sent, I made like 25 of them or something. So I did it as a joke. And I sent out this Christmas card. And I go to my friend's houses like in the middle of summer, and there's my Christmas card on their fridge. It's or still on my bar. fridge. Yeah. And so I'm like, huh, okay. And so that's what started this whole ridiculous Christmas card thing I do every year now I got with all it. these celebrities. So. Yeah, Meltdown has this thing, and it, it, it's anticipated. I look forward to it. Every Christmas, Meltdown's like... Sending out Christmas cards is actually old school. Yeah, it's not a lot of people do it. Yeah, Yeah. but Meltdown doesn't. He'll take the one guy from the year that is like most impactful or most cool that he met and interviewed or whatever. Well, lately it's been like in the last like ten or fifteen years, it's kind of it's kind of had to have a theme. Yeah. So like when I met, you know, when I did took a picture with James from Metallica, Mm -hmm. he kind of gave this pose and I'm like, this looks like an album cover. So we did that like (laughs) Meltdown and James sing your Christmas classics, and I changed the words like. Welcome home, Santa Terium, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, and you had a good Chris Angel one. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Yeah, I, that was his idea. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of become a thing, and it's like, uh, you know, this year I, I was thinking about it, It's like, man, what am I supposed to do now? I, I'm not meeting anybody. <laughs> right, uh, yeah, COVID prevents that, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. When you look back to 25 years, uh, Meltdown, um, I know it blows your mind. It, it happened so fast. Um, what are you most grateful for? Man, I'm most grateful that uh, you know somebody somebody gave me a shot. I'm most grateful that um, you know I've worked with some real legend in this business. I'm most grateful to have met you. Every time I I get inspired, and every time I talk to you, and it's like uh, you know we always have a great time. Yeah, we do. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm grateful that you know I, I've got to raise a family, and you know, in a really a, a working area. You know, um, you know, I got great in laws. I got a great family. You know, I, I can't, I can't, you know, be more proud of, you know, how, how my kids have turned out and stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just grateful that every day I get to go to work and, and do something that I, I really, really enjoy and I look forward to every day. And I look at it every single day as a challenge. And like we were talking about earlier, it's like, man, you know, it's like some days don't go like, like they should, but there's always mm-hmm. another day, you know, yeah, there like always you get is. back in there, you know. And even Steve, who who uh, edits this up, I've Steve become, Black, yeah, I've become great friends with him, and yeah, just he's a all great the guy. all the people I've met, not only in Michigan but you know at work, and uh, and here's the thing too, it's like, yeah, I'm friends with a lot of rock stars, and people probably you know envy a little bit of that, but I'll tell you this much, I'm friends with really good people that are rock stars, like right, I don't I don't want to be friends with someone because they're a rock star. Some of these guys I can text out of the blue, and they just text back and they're just good people right it's like that's what i look forward to yeah but those aren't all your only friends i mean you are good friends with just 
Harley riding, beer drinking. I'm friends with good people because yeah, I like I, I like people, good people. You yeah. know, and, and whether you're a rock star or a Harley guy, right? If on. you're not a good person, <laughs> I don't want to have anything to do with you. You know. Coming up. You know, when I interview somebody, there's a couple things I have in mind. I want to make them look good, but I want to get content. Yeah. You know, and it's like um, the reason when the reason that David Lee Roth thing went so crazy was because he said that Van Halen, as you know, it is finished. Yep. That's what he said. Yeah. But. I phrased it like, aren't you bummed out you couldn't go on tour with Van Halen this year because of whatever the reason was? Not because of COVID, it was before that. And that's when he went off into that. And like I said, that went around pretty quick. I'm Meltdown, and I host a podcast called Talk and Rock with Meltdown. And one of my favorite things to do is break news with artists. Like, for example, David Coverdale from Whitesnake hinting on retirement. And what better age for what for the Whitesnake lead singer to go out and retire on it? 69. Or Gavin Rosdale from Bush talking about his little acting parts here and there. Just want to pop up in a movie every now and again. You can check out Talk and Rock with Meltdown at bpodstudios.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Backstagecountry.com, your online home for all things country music. Wondering who made our list of the top five all-time queens of country music? Did Carrie Underwood make the cut? Find out now when you text Queens to 45911 and scroll through the list on BackstageCountry.com. Text Queens to 45911 to see the talented artists who rounded out our top five list. This is the History of WRIF, the podcast. From Pontiac to Plymouth. 101 WRIF, Detroit. This is the home of rock and roll. Go ahead, tell, tell me more. Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. Here is Mike Staff with our special guest, Meltdown. So, Meltdown, you have done uh, hundreds and maybe thousands of interviews. What are some of your favorites? So um, people ask me a lot, lot, like, who are your favorite interviews? And I always say, like, the next one I'm going to interview. Because it's yeah. like, that's what I'm always kind of looking that's for. That's cool, dude. But um, my favorite interviews are the ones that, like, make headlines. Yeah. And it's like, um, it's so exciting to me when I talk to David Lee Roth, posted at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and at 4 in the afternoon, it's on rollingstone.com. That is cool. And I always think to myself... I'm just a kid that grew up in BFE, New York. You know, this shouldn't be happening, you know? Right, right. And then last year, or a couple um, yeah, last year I was talking to Slash, and out of nowhere he starts telling me how they're going to record a new album. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> because nobody had said that yet, you know? And that went around it the made world. made headlines. Yeah, it went around the world like wildfire. So my wife and my kids and I, we fly down to uh, Florida, and we get, we get in the rental car. I'm in the rental car for 10 minutes, and I hear the girl on the radio say, yeah, Slash recently said how they're going to record a new record. I'm like, I cannot even believe this, right? <laughs> That's so cool. It was like from my interview, and it was like so exciting. But uh, uh, David Coverdale it, like talks to you like he's known you for years. I've yeah. never met David Coverdale in person, but right. he calls you by name, and, yeah. he, and he's just the best. Sammy Hagar is the best. I find that like for me, um, you might n- know this too, it's like the older guys – 
who have done this for a long time. They know what they're doing. They know exactly yeah. what they're doing. And they use your name and they make you feel like a million bucks. And, and some of them remember remember you, you know, uh, yeah. sometimes. But, like, uh, I just did an interview with Alice Cooper, and it's like, you know, Alice Cooper can start driving down the third lane of the highway, and before you know he's taking a U-turn, telling you a different story from somewhere else. And that's hard. But that's just how he is. He's yeah. like, and, it, and the stories are always great. Right, of course. But it's still hard to follow because you're, like, trying to well, let me tell guide you something. this interview. Talking to David Lee Roth is like herding cats. <laughs> that's true. You know, Dave starts talking, <laughs> makes a joke, and I'm like, okay, Dave, bring it back, you know. And i got to bring him back. Then he starts talking, and he goes off in left field again, and he bring him back. And he's laughing hardest at his own jokes. He loves his jokes. <laughs> he does. But uh, I think that those, um, like, uh, sometimes, like, I'll be at work, and he'll Hey, uh, do you want to talk to Alice Cooper? And I'm like, the 16 year old kid is like, is this like happening right, right now? It's like, right. of course I want to talk to. But Alice have you Cooper. have you ever said no? Like, is there anyone you wouldn't want to talk to? Why wouldn't yeah, you? you know? I wouldn't. Yeah, I I said no to Rich Robinson. Oh, really? Yeah, From the Black Crows. I, yeah, because I interviewed him once and I found him to be <clears throat> somewhat lackluster. And I I just I I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to waste my time. And this wow. was right before they announced that they were going to be coming back. Now, I, you start bringing up his brother. He doesn't want to talk about it. Well, people want to know about that. Right. He doesn't want to talk about it. And I right. get that he doesn't want to talk about it. That's understandable. I, I understand that. But, you know, it, it was just like, I'm like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just not interested. You know. Have but, you had any other bad interviews that just kind of made you go, you got to be kidding me? Yeah, I was talking to a guitar player one time, and this was a few years back. I'm not going to say who it was, but he's, like, packing to go on tour. It's like, dude, can you stop for, like, five minutes and talk to me? You know, you can hear him shuffling things. That's That really annoys me when I'm talking to somebody, and they're, like, doing something else. Yeah. It's like, yeah. listen, you know, when I interview somebody, there's a couple things I have in mind. I want to make them look good, but I want to get content. Yeah. You know? And it's like, um, the reason... When, the reason that David Lee Roth thing went so crazy was because he said that Van Halen, as you know it, is finished. Yep. That's what he said. Yep. But I phrased it like, aren't you bummed out you couldn't go on tour with Van Halen this year because of whatever the reason was? Not because of COVID, it was before that. And that's when he went off into that. And like I said, that went around pretty quick. Yeah. And that was exciting. To me, that's like fun. I don't do all my interviews to do that. But at the same point, it's like, you know, you know, it's like Eddie Trunk and stuff, right? And I'm like... Eddie Trunk yeah. of um, VH1. Yeah, that metal show. Yeah, that metal show. And, you know, people go to him all the time. For, and I'm like, you know but what? But he's well-respected. He people love him. And he's the real deal. Right. But yeah. it's like, why can't I do that? Right. That's the way I've always looked why at it. Why not? You know, when I, about 18, 19 years ago, I was at my house, and I was talking to one of my friends who was also on radio, and he said something to me in passing that he probably never even thought of. But it stuck with me this whole time. We're just talking. He goes, he goes, yeah, dude, the cream always rises to the top. And I never forgot that. That little, like, little three-second sentence mm-hmm. was all I needed to hear. Right. And I'm like, yeah, that dude's right. You know, Meltdown, one of the things that um, I think define a lot of your interviews is that you have this really unique way of approaching the interview as a fan. You, are, you can tell that you love this music. That you are into it, you can't fake that kind of stuff. Yeah, some well, and sometimes more than others, you know. But like, sure. the, but like this coming week, you know, and this I don't know when this is going to air, but this coming week, I'm talking to John Anderson from Yes. Now, I don't play Yes on the radio, mm-hmm. and, but Yes, I remember as a kid growing up, and since I got back into vinyl, I've become this huge Yes fanatic. Yeah, man. Like, yeah, I mean, Chris Squire we were talking about earlier. It's the like, Fragile album is so oh good. Oh my god, it's like amazing, <laughs> it, right? It, and on vinyl, it sounds even oh. better. And so it's like, 
I'm going to be super excited to talk to him. I talked to Getty Lee last year, and first of all, Getty Lee calls on time. He calls on a phone that's perfect, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is great. And he's so easy to talk to. I had no stipulations of what not to talk about. Yeah. You know, and and I listened to the interview back, and I'm like, I sound really excited to talk to him because I was. Yeah, you know? right. Well, you know, when I was in radio, so again, I retired from radio in 2006. Uh, the internet obviously was around, but social media was very new. Today, it's very different because the majority of your interviews aren't even done live on the air, which right. that was the only way we used None to of do them are, interviews. Yeah. Um, and you're doing a ton of interviews, and you alluded to it earlier. How do you think that's changed a little bit? You know, um, I think that these interviews now are becoming like the hit parader or the circus magazine of our day. You yeah, know so for people that don't know who that is, that is magazines from the 70s and 80s. Yeah, the rock were magazines. all about rock and roll. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, you would have to wait, you know, but the stuff you're reading took place a month earlier. You're right. You know what I'm saying? Right. But now it's like when, when I'm talking to somebody, uh, sometimes... When I'm talking to somebody, I can tell, okay, this is going to go well. Like, like, they'll say something, and I'll be like, you know, uh, rock sources around the world are going to pick this up. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, when Slash says, oh, by the way, we're recording a new record, it's like, you know, you just know it's going to happen. Right. And so, um, but today it's like, you know, with, with podcasts and stuff, and I don't know, do you, do you listen to these podcasts? I do, of course. Okay, so I listen to all mine, too, and people might think, well, that's awfully narcissistic, right? But it's, no, it's like... I want to hear how it sounds. You know, I know what I'm doing when I'm doing the interview, when I'm sitting in that studio. But I want to hear how it sounds when I'm riding my bicycle or in my car or on my Harley Davidson. Well, and you're listening critically so you can get better, too. Right. That's exactly right. It's like I'm not listening because I want to hear myself talk. Well, of course. I'm like, did I did I talk over him? Did I give him enough, you know, enough room to talk? Or, you know, could I have? But then sometimes the trick is, well, you only got 10 minutes with some of these guys. Some. Right. About half. Yeah. Maybe a little bit less than half. So you got to really kind of get some content out of them. I can't be spending five minutes talking about what I want, you know, about myself, you know. But one of the things I notice from these is that you can kind of open it up a little bit. And you you tend to get more out of these artists because when you're doing it live on the air, it's, I mean, it's high impact. You're live and if somebody doesn't like Nickelback, then they're going to turn it off. Yeah. And you just can't go that deep, and you got to like have a five-minute interview. But when you're doing it online, you can really open that up, and the people that like Nickelback are going to listen. Yeah. Because it's on demand, they're looking for it, and that kind of frees you up to go a little bit deeper, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, for sure. Especially, you know, when you see, you know, uh, you know Meltdown talk to Nickelback, and you're one of the fans. But, you know, it's... I was just—you just jarred my memory of a sh- of an interview I did with uh, <laughs> with one of the Gallagher brothers from Oasis. I was doing the afternoon drive one time back in 1997 or 1998. I can't remember what it was, and I was filling in for Arthur, who was off that day. For whatever. I mean, Arthur never really took off, so you know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's just, he had so many travel days. <laughs> right, right. So they said, "Hey, uh, one of the Gallagher brothers—I can't remember to this day which one it was—but." I'm thinking, this is great. I'm going to make a name for myself, right? And I'm going to get this guy to get pissed off at me. So I'm throwing everything I can at him live on the air. <laughs> because you knew Dude, he might be uh, uh, Yeah, it might be cannon. volatile, right? And so I'm like, <laughs> this guy is going to get mad at me, and uh, and he's going to hang up, and I'm going to get all this press. It was one of the best interviews I ever did, and he never got mad at me. <laughs> That's so funny, no matter how hard you tried. Oh, I tried. <laughs> I had this interview with Marilyn Manson once, and I had read all these uh, interviews that he did, and I was going to really throw some hardballs at him. And um, let me just say, Marilyn Manson turned out to be a little smarter than me. 
He saw me coming. He said, I interviewed him once in person. He was great. He is great and smart and articulate. Yeah. But um, I asked him the same questions that he had a different answer for before. And he just totally burned me the whole way through the interview. I remember I interviewed him on his bus. It was like 7.30. We were backstage at DTE and the sun's setting. So it's kind of shaded back there. Then he got on his bus. Now it's even darker. And we're uh, and we I couldn't take a picture with him because he wasn't in his stage getup. Mm. And uh, interesting, yeah. And so then we're in this back of this bus and like this candle lit. It wasn't candles, but like that's what that's how that's how bright the lights were. And he comes walking back with his sunglasses on. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, whatever. But he was awesome. He's a rock star. He was great. <laughs> What's your favorite concert? Can you say? Man, I'll tell you what. That Metallica Guns and Roses concert back in the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you get two bigger bands to tour at the same time? It right. was like. There's so many things I remember from that show. I was show. at the Silverdome. Well, th- I wasn't there. I was saw mine in Buffalo. Oh, okay. And uh, that that night ended about 4 in the morning. But, uh, I mean, I saw so many great things uh, that night. And, um, I mean, we could, we could do a whole episode on that. But that, to me, was like, you don't see those shows anymore. I'm trying to think. It's like, you know, it's funny. I interviewed James Hetfield a couple of years ago. He's, you know, he's playing at Comerica Park. I'm like, yeah, I saw that tour back in 1992. You were touring stadiums. Now it's 2017. You're touring stadiums. Yeah, you know, right. It's like, that staying power of that band is unbelievable. You know, one of my favorite concerts, probably my favorite concert of all time, was a riff-only show with Metallica at the State Theater. Yeah, they did covers, and it was, right? Yeah, it was Garage yeah. Inc. Yeah. Uh, Garage Days, yeah. right? Yep. And they had a Metallica a cover band opening up that were doing all the hits. And then Metallica yeah, like came or out. Something. Yep. Yeah. And it was so amazing. Um, small venue, big band, and that's how we used to promote it, remember? Yep, yep, yeah. And, and, and you know, it's uh, James and, and Lars, you know, have always been like some of my favorites. Uh, you know, and, and people, you know, might give him a little bit of slack, especially Lars, but Lars has always been great. I remember doing an interview with him one time with a with a fan. The fan did the interview, and he that's was great. Cool. You know, he was awesome. It was like 2009 at the Joe or something like that. So we're, um, it's, it's so hard to even imagine, but Riff is coming up on its 50th anniversary. You've been with Riff half of its life. What do you think it is about the Riff that makes it resonate so much to the listeners of Detroit? Well, like I said earlier, it's like, you know, Riffs don't just grow on trees, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like the history and that, and the fact that it's never changed. Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't say changed, but it's, it's always been a rock station, yeah. right? Of course, it's evolved and changed through time. It's always had big personalities, you know, especially with, you know, the Arthur and the... Uh, the Drew Mikes and the, you know the Dave and Chucks and you were you know you're talking to JJ and stuff you know yeah. and uh, you know it's it's always been like like that and um, just the people that have walked the halls and the rock stars that have come through and you know I was interviewing Mike Levine from Triumph you know like I was telling you earlier and um you know I had the, the usual ten minutes I said well listen I'm running out of time and he goes yeah you work at the Riff you got all the time you want you know and, and <laughs> bands they they tended to get they that, do you know? have that kind of respect for the Riff. Yeah, they there's other it. stations. You know, we got a sister station in Philadelphia that's real popular. It's kind of like the riff of Philadelphia. They've MMR. been around for a long time. Yeah. yeah, and it's like, but I think that the bands they come through town, they know where their bread is buttered. They know when they come back through, riff is going to be there. Some of the other stations are gone. Well, a lot of the bands are actually fans of the radio station because they know how influential WRIF to, is to the Detroit audience. Yeah, and, and and like you know now, like I said with with my podcast and stuff, it, it's it's my podcast. But at the end of the day, it's the Riff brand, right? And it's of like course. I want I want that to represent the radio station in a positive way, 
you know, and it's like um, I'm not out there trying to make these guys look bad. I'm like I said, I'm trying to get content. I'm trying to give the fans something they might not hear anywhere else. And sometimes I've got ten minutes. Sometimes I've got an hour. So. Well, it's interesting because I remember listening to the riff when I was about five years old. I'd I'd listen to my little radio under my covers when my parents put me to bed, and I was all about the riff. And it was like the DJs brought me closer to the bands that I loved. Yeah. And it's still the same right now, and you have a lot more vehicles to be able to do that, not only the airwaves, but social media, all the video, all the podcasting, and everything else. Yeah, and it's, it's funny you mentioned vehicles, which I know you're talking in a different way, but when I first came to interview a Riff, and I pulled in the parking lot, and I saw the Riff vehicles, I'll never forget that. I'm like, <laughs> there they are, the big ovals, you know? And I'm yeah, like, right. that's so cool, man. That is the Riff. Yeah. You know? Yeah, the riff is uh, something very special, and it's special to the hearts of the people of Detroit. And it's Detroit. It's not it is. Chicago and Kansas City and Duluth or whatever. You know, it is, it's Detroit. And I'm sure you've heard this a million times because I have. You know, people tell me they will, you know, they'll go to Florida for a vacation, and they'll be driving back on I-75, and when they can finally get the riff, yeah, yeah. they know they're home. Yeah, you know, Arthur, of course, had that distinctive voice and he stuff, sure and people, you know, knew that, you know, coming back, and... I like to think in a small way that my voice resonates a little bit with people that way. I, I'm, I'm not, you know, saying it does or, you know, whatever, but it's like, I like to think so, mm-hmm. you know, but it's like, you know, I might just be giving myself too much credit. <laughs> well, uh, i to tell you, Meltdown, it's been a pleasure. Um, it, you know, we've been friends for a very long time, and um, you're a big part of Detroit history now, even... Though you're the one guy at Riff who wasn't born in Metro Detroit. You were made in Detroit, brother. Yeah, born in Buffalo, made in Detroit. <laughs> right on. Thank you for the time. Thank you for the podcast. Thank you for the Metallica whiskey. Hey, yeah, there you go. All right, time to crack open this jack. I'm yeah, done. let's do it, man. We're going for the rest of the night. <laughs>